This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Ewa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over. And Rebecca Mackay, I have been looking forward to this conversation for so long because I'm sorry, I have to do it. I have some questions for you. <laughs> <laughs> I know you're going to hear that. So I know. We're taping pre-pub, so I'm hoping I'm getting the terrible pun out of the way because this novel is so good. I have some questions for you. Can we talk about where this book started and Bodie Kane? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's a, um, you know, the way I have been describing it is it's a literary feminist boarding school murder mystery. Everyone's favorite genre. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I live on campus of a boarding school. I don't teach here. My husband does. Um, part of the deal is that you, for most faculty, you live on campus and that, you know, your housing is covered, which is amazing. So we've lived here for quite a while. And I was always going to write a boarding school novel. That was always mm-hmm. going to happen. I originally was like, I won't write it until, you know, 2045. I'll wait until everyone's retired. But it was it just kept getting ideas for a story and, and particularly for the layers of history that a place mm-hmm. like this encapsulates the way that um, people, pass, you know, it's a very permanent place, but it's one that people pass through very quickly. And yet at one of the most formative times of their life. Right. And then the idea of someone revisiting that space very early on, it was going to be a mystery because, um, you know, books are always either asking questions about the future suspense Mm -hmm. or what happens next or the present, um, like what's going on right now or the past. Mm -hmm. And because of these layers of history, this idea of boarding school, I wanted it to be questions about the past when you ask questions about the past, that's pretty much a mystery. <laughs> and uh, and then I decided to take that really literal and and it really is a murder mystery. Um, but it's, you know, it's certainly not just a whodunit and it's definitely not like a lady detective with her cat knitting, you know, that, which I, I love those. I see those. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, that, that sounds so relaxing and wonderful to read. It's, you know, it's different than that, but it is a murder mystery. Bodie Kane is a film professor. Mm-hmm. And a podcaster, <laughs> a thing that didn't even exist, you know, when she was first enrolled as a student at this right. prep school. I mean, professor, sure, but podcaster, what? What? Right. But Bodie is sort of the ultimate outsider. She is never expected, I mean, Indiana to begin with, but she never expected to be at a place like Granby. Right. So where did Bodie come from? I mean, I get the idea of starting with the school and mm-hmm. the bigger concepts, but she's got a really interesting voice. Yeah. It took me a long time to figure her out. There, there mm-hmm. are, I, I know so many writers, brilliant writers who start with character mm-hmm. and they, you know, they just, they get a vibe, they hear a voice. Um, and then they have to think about what this character is going to get up to. Mm-hmm. And I'm the opposite. I start with scenario Okay. And then I just always makes me sound psychotic, but I, I reverse engineer my perfect victim, essentially. Um, you know, who would get into this mess? Mm-hmm. Who's going to be most changed by this mess? Who's most vulnerable to these circumstances? Who's going to act in ways that we couldn't maybe predict? Mm-hmm. And it, it was a lot of searching around to find this person. I settled on someone who, she was an outsider uh, at the school, but not as much as she thought she was. Right. Which is so often the case, right? Mm-hmm. It's anyone. 
And they, no one says, oh, I was really popular. Everyone was thinks they were an outsider. Um, and she, she was maybe more than, more than plenty of mm-hmm. them, but definitely not the only one. And she's someone who, uh, you know, her work in film and her podcast, it's about the abuses of women in early mm-hmm. Hollywood. She's someone who, as an adult, critically has been thinking about these structures of power, about sexism, about racism also, and but is has not yet been able to turn back and examine her own past with that same critical eye. Right. And think about um, the structures she was part of, even as she thought she was an outsider, but she was actually part of these structures. Mm-hmm. Um, this murder um, that occurred when she was a senior, she starts to realize, and this is, you know, slightly a spoiler, but it's a very, very early spoiler. It's the mm-hmm. premise of the whole book. Starts to realize that it was probably solved incorrectly and perhaps the wrong person is in prison. So I needed someone who maybe was trained in that way of thinking, but had not yet turned that same eye on her circumstances and on this case that was much closer to home. You cover so much ground without really leaving the campus of this prep school. I mean, it's, I don't want to say it's a locked room. Mr. You know, that is a very specific thing, but right. you do a lot on a very small campus and it's yeah. kind of wild the way you're moving back and forth in time. I mean, obviously there are some folks from her past who are encountered and some folks who are not, mm-hmm. but how did you know when you had the structure for this story? Right. Well, I didn't at first, for sure. Okay. I, I okay. wanted a sort of a hot house novel. I love those mm-hmm. where you have a limited right. setting and a limited cast. Um, I have joked, and I'm not even joking, that my entire career has just been trying to rewrite The Westing Game by Ellen Raskin, which was my favorite. <laughs> okay. It's like, everyone's in this one building, and oh my God, it snowed, and one of them's a murderer. I, I think I'm not alone in that. I think a lot of a lot of writers of, around my, mm-hmm. you know, our, our generation are, yep. uh, was one of their favorites. Originally, the story was going to be this bunch of high school classmates has had to reconvene for a retrial. And Mm -hmm. they're all staying in the same hotel. They're not really supposed to talk to each other, but they're all here. It's Mm -hmm. a really good high school reunion. And that was the first stuff that I wrote. I I sat down and I wrote the scene of Bodie arriving at this hotel. um, And this case already being really famous and, and all this stuff already having happened. I realized quickly that there was just so much backstory to get in. Not only what had happened in 1995, but what had happened several years earlier to get mm-hmm. us to this place. So I felt like, okay, I'm going to back up a little. The moment where she got involved and and maybe mm-hmm. she's going to go back to the school. She's going to be teaching this little two-week class, you know, revisiting her old stomping grounds for the first time. I'll, you know, see how much I need, time I need to spend there before I can get to the real story. And okay. of course that turned into three quarters of the book. <laughs> Um, her time back on this campus. So what I thought was going to be a prologue, whoops. But it was, of course, then at, at a certain point, very intentional to go, no, 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 this is this is the gravity. This is where the weight of the book is. I'm still going to have that strange, you know, everyone packed in a hotel, but that's going to be the final act. That's mm-hmm. going to be, the, you know, um, what everything leads up to. Uh, so at that point, you know, things came together, but things change, you know, constant changes all the way through. You don't know that you have the final structure until. Mm-hmm. It is out of your hands and your editor goes, okay, no more changes. 
the, you know, they're going to get really upset with you if you mess up the pagination stop. <laughs> and uh, then you're like, I guess that's the final form. Great Believers was 2018. That's right. You and I are talking now in January of 23. Mm -hmm. And we're just a few weeks away, obviously, from the release of I have some questions for you. So how long then were you with Bodhi and her classmates right. on campus? Right. So I have a long, I think of it as a marination phase. I have this really uh -huh. long kind of stewing on a book mm -hmm. before I start to write. And I could not even begin to calculate when that started for this okay. book. Just, you know, individual thoughts, going way back, you know, taking my kids over to swim in the campus pool when they were toddlers and <laughs> like all the lights were off, but it's lit in this beautiful way from the windows. And it's kind of creepy and thinking this is where something, you know, when I finally write a boarding school novel, there's something, it's, it, it's all about the swimming pool. <laughs> that was years ago, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I know that the first time I really sat down and started typing, which is a, its own specific moment, was um, April of 2019. Okay, I was at Ragdale, the the wonderful storied artist colony uh, near Chicago, not far from me. Um, magical place, like you get, you walk in the door and you inhale the air, and you're like, I'm ready to to make something. And um, things were still happening for the Great Believers. That was, right. I was in that room at Ragdale when I found out I'd been a Pulitzer finalist. Mm -hmm. Not right that day. We, we got drunk on Prosecco at 10 a.m. <laughs> um, me and everyone else who was there. It was great. That was still very much part of my world, as it still is. The Great Believers just still with me so much. So yeah, I would say, you know, 2019, really, really writing, but definitely I'd been thinking, taking notes, planning for a couple of years before that. It's been a while. I've been living with this woman. Yeah. I have to say, at first, I didn't realize exactly how unreliable <laughs> Bodhi was going to turn out to be. And the the journey, as it were, mm. is really fun. I, I really, I flew through the pages in a way that I didn't with the great believers. Mm. And I think it's it's combination of material, right. but also Bodhi, because I just, I wanted to know what her deal was. And part of it, so her soon-to-be ex-husband, which I'm not giving, <laughs> I am giving nothing away there. Right. Um, he has a Me Too moment. Mm -hmm. And that seems to be a point, too, for Bodhi, where she really starts to say, hey, wait a minute, hey, wait a minute. And I don't want to suggest that you're writing in real time. I mean, you're, the novel is its own world mm -hmm. and everything else, but you do a very cool thing throughout. I pinged on sort of page 62 and 63, and I just want to use that as an, I just needed an example for you. But the way Bodhi talks about sort of cases in the ether and what's been happening, oh no, that's the girl with the football team. That's the da 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 da. And mm -hmm. it's a really great device. Do you happen to have a copy of the book handy? Can I ask you to? I do. Well, that's a good question. Yes, I do. I have one and only one copy of this book because I haven't got <laughs> my, yeah, my one advanced copy. I've, I've destroyed my galley because that's how I, oh, how I love I read. it. Can you just read? It's sort of from the second graph and oh yeah, I really would like to spend a few minutes on that, but it's yeah. so great. I can read this. Yeah. And there it was, the reason Jerome had warned me off the internet. Anderson Cooper, with new developments on a story I'd found particularly disturbing. 
it doesn't matter which story. Let's say it was the one where the young actresses said yes to a pool party and didn't know. Or no, let's say it was the one where the rugby team covered up the girl's death and the school covered for the rugby team. Actually, it was the one where the therapist spent years grooming her. It was the one where the senator, then a promising teenager, shoved his dick in the girl's face. She was also a promising teenager. It was the one where the billionaire shoved the woman into the phone booth, but no one believed her. The one where the high school senior was acquitted of rape because the sophomore girl had shaved her pubic region, which somehow equaled consent. Oliver asked if I was hungry, and I shrugged. It was the one where the woman who stabbed her rapist with scissors was the one who ended up in jail. It was the one where the star had a secret button to unlock the doors. It was the one where the harasser ended up on the Supreme Court. It was the one where the rapist ended up on the Supreme Court. It was the one where the woman shaking testified all day on live TV and nothing happened. So yeah, these were things. <laughs> um, obviously, some of these are ones that you can draw connections to real mm-hmm. stories. Um, a few of them I've invented um, mm-hmm. or it changed enough that mm-hmm. it's really not the same thing anymore. So here's how that came about, because this is a sort of a motif that recurs throughout the book, this case that she's watching yeah. that is somehow all cases at once. This was a solution to a problem for me. I wanted there to be something on TV um, because we were, you know, it was was 2019 and there was just constantly something, old cases, new cases, things coming out that were shaking us up. And I wanted her to be watching something like that. I wanted that to be in the background upsetting her. I didn't want to pick one real case and have that be the focus. And I did not want to invent a case and have to build this whole thing. And the point is, I don't need to invent these because there's so many real ones. So I just decided it was going to be all of them. (laughs) Even, you know, in this case, she's saying, yeah, let's say it was this one. But in other scenes, I actually have other characters talking about these cases. They're saying completely contradictory things because they're talking about all of them at once. So this conversation can't possibly have happened. You know, the rest of the book is is very realistic. um, But there are these moments where it's like, yeah, I'm. it's just a mess. Let's just say that it was all of these things at the same time. It's weird to say I had fun with that, but it, it was a very cathartic way of writing. I'll say that. It's a great device. And I don't mean to belittle the content by describing it as a device, but as a literary right. device, yes. it really works. It keeps you centered in the story and the overwhelming sort of, I don't want to say, cha- it's not chaotic for Bodhi, but it's clear that she has told herself some things that meh, she may not have the evidence yeah. to back or, up. And yeah. but the idea that so much is in the ether and so much is happening. You've one of the kids that she's working with on campus, this girl Brit, <laughs> she's a mm-hmm. really great character. Oh. But at one point too, she says to Bodhi, you know, I'm not okay with true crime podcasts. I'm not okay with essentially the homework assignment. Mm-hmm. And yet she ends up essentially creating a true crime podcast yeah. for her homework assignment. But I think, you know, this is part of the larger conversation we need to be having about how we treat information like this. I think there was a moment, too, you know, where the families of Jeffrey Dahmer's victims were just like, why is this a television? Why are you doing We have made this very clear. Mm-hmm. We don't want to be part of it. And it's as if the narrative continues and it's like these women don't even get to have their own bodies right. after something terrible has happened. 
Right. Yeah. It's, you know, I'm certainly, while this book does take, you know, partake of the um, kind of, you know, the, the genre, the tropes of a crime novel, it's fundamentally not true crime because it's fiction. And people, it's funny, people keep asking me like, well, you wrote this true crime novel, but it's literally fiction. It's the opposite of true crime. It is fake crime, but um, it certainly is concerned with true crime. The the premise, you know, of the novel, once you've suspended your disbelief is this is a murder that has captured the public's imagination. Mm -hmm. This is something where the family and the witnesses and and the man who's in prison have absolutely lost control of the narrative because mm-hmm. it belongs to the public now. And what does that mean? Right. And there's, what does it mean for the victim's family? Mm-hmm. Which is, mm-hmm. You know, uh, maybe sidelined a bit here, but, but certainly part of the story. What does it mean for these kind of secondary characters, you know, in, in this thing where there are people who, really didn't know much, but they got elevated into this role in this case. And then there are people who actually knew more than they thought they did, but because they weren't um, centralized in the telling of the story, they assume that their information is not valuable. And that that includes Bodhi, who all along has had some information that that was probably incredibly important. My job is to complicate things. You know, my job is not to to serve up an easy... <laughs> Some yes. easy listening hits here, you know. I'm I'm taking that question of true crime, that question of um the armchair detective, that question mm-hmm. of, of internet sleuthing, all those things. And like let's really look at this uh realistically. Let's really look at what this means for the people involved. I have to say, I really like Bodhi as a character. There were a couple of times where I was like, oh, you did okay. You did that okay. And I mean, again, it's it is part of the fun, and I don't want to make light of the ground that you're covering in any way, shape, or but following her and watching her evolve and come to terms, and there's there's an internet sleuth, let's call him, right, that she ends up sort of connecting with in a way that I never would have expected. But it was a great moment when it happens because you know exactly why she's doing it and you know she believes why she's doing it and yet this is a dude she's been making fun of for a while mm-hmm, and she's mm-hmm. like you know what <laughs> this makes sense I'm d- yeah I'm just gonna yeah. do I'm just gonna do it and I yeah. think certainly I so appreciate the fact that she's messy yeah she's just you. like she's messy and she's real and she's kind of great and she doesn't have terrible intentions. She's just mm-hmm. human and messy. Right. And her life is, you know, not maybe what she predicted it was going to be. Right. So you were calling her an unreliable narrator. And mm-hmm. I agree. But here's my contrary argument. Okay. I think she is a tremendously reliable narrator in that okay. she admits what she doesn't remember. Because the lie of most fiction... Um, and I, it's it's a lie I'm happy to partake in, you know, so mm-hmm, much of the time mm-hmm. is, yeah, let me tell you what I remember. You know, here's what happened 15 years ago. And it's a perfect chronological memory. Like, right. and then this person said this, and then he glanced to the side, and then he said this, and then this happened. That's not the way memory works. <laughs> That's not at all <laughs> the way memory works, right? And um what I wanted to do here, I wanted to trap her in the present. I did not want to let the narrative 
fly us back in time to see what really happened. And I didn't want to let her memory be this kind of magic fictional suspension of disbelief memory where it was like, I picked up the pen and I was back. I was there. 1920s Brooklyn. Here's exactly what happened. So um, it is, she's being um, as honest with herself and with her kind of audience, which is a strange audience in her head for who she's, who she's talking to, as honest as she can be about what she remembers, what she doubts, what she questions. And so basically she's highlighting her own unreliability right? in a very, I think, you know, in a very honest way. Um, so it's not, it's, you know, not so much about deception as it is about sometimes withholding, right? Protecting certain information and about owning the fact mm-hmm. that we're all hugely unreliable narrators. No, I definitely agree with you on the her honesty when it comes to what I don't know. But the way you reveal these bits is really satisfying. <laughs> it's just so yeah, it satisfying for the reader because, I mean, there are there are moments in the book where I would say there were choices you could have made. And I, I'm, I'm dancing a little delicately here, but uh, some other writers might have made different choices mm-hmm. with sure. some points that happen in the book. And I was just like, oh, no. Oh, OK, here we are. I, <laughs> a couple of characters who show themselves as adults to be slightly unexpected. There's um, mm-hmm. a woman who shows up very sort of towards the end of things. And um, yeah. and there's another classmate who, you know, I was saying to you before we started taping, I was like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, that does. That guy. <laughs> You're not a fan. <laughs> No, but I mean, but, but I understand Mm -hmm. the, the POV and I understand how that character would end up in that place. But at the same time, was I rolling my eyes at him? Yes. I was rolling my eyes at a fictional character. (laughs) I was like, dude, no. Of course. Of course. It was just a really satisfying reading experience. And Mm -hmm. again, this whole hothouse tiny cast, one location, mm-hmm. and the way you're jumping back and forth in time without, yeah, the magical pen. I Thank you for not doing right. Thank you for not. Suddenly I saw the photograph and I was transported back to 1995. Right. Right. I mean, yeah. there are great pop culture moments in this. There are great sort of class moments that, yeah. and Good. literally meaning not educational class but class class and right right no all of these you just do these things in little drops and then suddenly we get to the next bit but can we talk about your literary influences for a second because there's a lot happening in this book in a lot of great ways the way you handle time the way you handle memory the way you handle you know revelation and all of that but I feel like a lot went into this book that we don't necessarily see (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I you know, influence is a really funny question for me always mm-hmm. because I obviously, you know, like every writer, I'm a huge reader. I was a huge reader as a kid onward. Um, I know the moments for me where I read something and went, oh my God, you know, that just yeah. blew me away. I didn't know you were allowed mm-hmm. to do that. But it's very hard for me to trace from there into my own writing. Because the last thing I want to do is copy, right? Right, 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 right. But obviously I'm writing 
a novel because other people have written novels. I'm structured, you know, of course I'm seeped in influence. It's just really hard for me to sort that all out. I do love books like we said earlier, you know, that had that kind of that contained cast that yeah. was in place that one time, right? Mm-hmm. I love that. And I love books that yank you around a little bit in mm-hmm. terms of structure, in terms of truth. So I see, because I'm looking at, I've been checking out your books the whole yeah. time. I do, I see Trust by Hernan Diaz. Oh, love. And you're like, what? Love <laughs> what he does in that book. <laughs> right? Uh, can't claim that as an influence because I read it like three weeks ago. Right? Right. Uh, but what a book, right? Right. Um, so, you know, books that do that. Um, mm-hmm. My my favorite Jennifer Egan novel is the one no one has read. It's called The Keep. And uh, sorry, I've read that. No, 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 no. You. you and I, you and I can sit in the corner. Really. <laughs> I love that book. Oh, my God. I mean, I lo- the thing is, I will read anything she writes. Well, yes. I will so. follow her anyway because I trust what she's doing. I yeah, And I have to say, the first time I saw the copy for The Keep, and I had it in Galley a million years ago, and I looked mm. at it and said, okay. Not yeah. entirely sure what's happening here, but I will do it because that's it's it. her and I trust. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's it. That's it. it. You know, and that's that's one where you just, you go, I, I can't believe you got away with that. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. Mm-hmm. I can't mm-hmm. believe that worked. That's not supposed to work. What? Yep. <laughs> Structurally, and, and do I believe this person? And then also managing to tell an incredibly suspenseful story. Right. Um, right. It's not just a gymnastics routine. You know, which which is the risk that people run mm-hmm. when they get fancy with their narratives. It's like, all right, yep, I can see you do the double backflip. Great, ten points, awesome. Okay, but there's no like, where's where's my story, man? Mm-hmm. And um, that one does it. And so, you know, there's that. I'll say the other. I think the greatest influence on my writing mm-hmm. is the fact that I taught elementary school for 12 years, taught Montessori elementary school. And I read aloud to those kids for half an hour every school day. And it's not so much a matter of what I read them. I can't say like, mm-hmm. oh, sure, that was my biggest influence or something. It was a matter of visceral reaction from those kids and my instantaneous feedback on what bored them yeah, and what worked, what was confusing, what was dragging you know, the moments where just to save the class, I needed to like summarize the next three pages for them because they don't want to read a description of the woods. We're just going to move on. That was an unparalleled literary training. It was really that, that I don't have an MFA. That was my mm-hmm. MFA. Um, just, you know, oh, this, you know, this is dragging and this kid has just gotten the craft scissors and is cutting the hem of their pants. <laughs> like I can see that this is not working. Um, it partly was about, you know, lessons about pacing, lessons about mm-hmm. momentum, but it was also, um, it instilled in me an absolute terror of boring people. Like as a writer, you know, I can feel when someone would be getting bored. I know when this is going on too long. I know when you need some plot, I, I'm very easily bored. I, I'm, I've got ADHD. I just, I need like constant something. Give me some stimulation. Right. And, um, that's part of it too, for sure. If you can count that as a literary influence. Um, uh, yeah, totally. Cause also you've done enough live events where, you know, when you sort of start to lose the audience Oh yeah, and you know, you, you can change the pace of the event very, very quickly, or, you know, sometimes you get an audience that just wants to stay and you're like, okay. I'm going to yeah. take, I'm, I'm going to take this extra 10 minutes that I would not, right. 
otherwise have, because clearly you are here and I have not heard a single rustle. I have not seen a single person scoot in their chair. It's right. wild when that They're happens. And it's just like, thing. Yeah. Oh, I would very much like to be part of this. I, you know, I partially asked too, because as I was researching, you know, and doing my thing before we sat down, um, you love Julio Tsuka's The Buddha in the Attic the way yeah. I love Julio Tsuka's <laughs> Buddha in the Attic. And so any chance I get to talk about Julio Tsuka's work with another human being, I'm just like, hi, hi, can we just <laughs> rave about Julio Tsuka for a second? Because what she does with voice oh my God. in that book and structure mm-hmm. and story and all of the things. And she does it, of course, in, you know, 160 pages because she's Julia. Right. She can do well, this. Talk about getting away with things that you would not think you could get away with. And it's, I have the hardest time, you know, con- I mean. My enthusiasm convinces people to read that book. But what do you say? Like, it's a book. There are no characters. There's no story. It's really good, which sounds to me like my nightmare read, right? Like, like I just said, I need, I need stuff. I need story. Um, so you say, okay, well, it's about Japanese immigrants to California. And it's, you know, through, that's something. Um, but you, well, you can't explain that book. You mm-hmm. just have to start reading. Exactly. That's, that's all. And just how you move through mm-hmm. the story. I mean, yes, we just said there is no story. Well, there is a story. It's there just is, the yes. language just pulls you through. Yeah. And before you know it, you're done. Right. Yeah. I, yeah. I do read really quickly, but I will slow myself down for Julia Tsuka. So, again, just an excuse to yell yeah. about Julia <laughs> and her brilliant, and brilliant books. My, yeah. I was talking to my students about what their engines are. Mm-hmm. Like what, you know, what is making, what would make someone turn the pages? What is the momentum right. here? And if, you know, if it's going to be plot, then, okay, let's talk about plot structure. Let's really get in there. What mm-hmm. makes plot go? What, what moves us forward? Mm-hmm. If you think you can get away without plot, what are you doing instead? Right. Right. And she's a great example. It's like, oh, my God, litany, lyricism, voice. There is movement. It's just, you know, poetry. Uh, that works. You know, sometimes it's other things like some, you know, it's it's something about structure where it's like a story written like a list. Right. And it's um, not talking about her, but, you know, someone else where, OK, maybe I don't need a plot because I have this sort of exoskeleton. There's something else. You know, this, the students who think that they can. Um, not have plot and also not have anything else <laughs> that is that is like this incredibly compelling forward movement that that's where it's not going to work yeah sorry no make a choice have you had a chance to read the swimmers yes her last yes what she does where it switches where you're you're in the pool and you're yeah. with this community and then suddenly there's that shift halfway through and yeah. I knew something was coming because that one person we knew that person's name. Yep, there's a right. And a, and just that one. tiny, tiny bit. And then suddenly we're in the rest of the book. And again, it's 159 pages. So if you haven't read it yet, please just go buy it and read it because it's brilliant. This is, this but again, it's a Julio Tsuka podcast. Yeah, yeah, right. I mean, actually, I I can just fangirl for hours. But when you talk about that shift in narrative, that's exactly yes. know, what you're doing in a lot of ways through Bodhi. I mean, mm. I just, again, I know I've come back to this, but this idea that you're using all of the different pieces of all of the different cases, whether they're real or imagined, it's just, it's such a great way 
to keep us grounded mm. in the larger pieces of the Thank story. You. And I just, I so appreciate that. And, you know, I would like to see some art with my art plays. Like some people experience stories in different ways. That's great. But I just, the fact that I have language to hold on to, too, right. Um, right. is a delight for me. And which brings yeah. me to the great believers a bit, only because Fiona Marcus, mm-hmm. who is a big piece, obviously, of the great believers, there were moments where I felt like Bodie Kane and Fiona Marcus sort of sat on a continuum and not yeah. just because you were the writer, um, but because they're women who are very emotionally compressed in a way mm-hmm. and don't always have space for the rest of the world the way we're told women should always have space right. for the rest of the world. Right. And, you know, I respect that because. But can we talk about that sort of intersection for you as the writer? I mean, you're coming off of this very big, you know, winner of the Los Angeles Times Prize for Fiction, winner of the ALA, finalist for the Pulitzer Prize, Mm -hmm. finalist for the National Book Award. A lot happened. You spent a lot of time on the road talking to people about the great believers. Mm -hmm. But can we just talk about the intersection of these women for a second? Yeah, they definitely... um... You know, I've had female uh, protagonists before, but there mm-hmm. is, you're absolutely right. There's a, there is a sort of a continuum there of kind of unapologetic women. Yeah. You know, in Fiona's case, it's interesting. She's someone in The Great Believers. Uh, she'd started as just this very secondary character, this young woman in her 20s in the 1980s who was always kind of drunk at the parties. And later on, um, you know, as partway into the draft when I realized I I wanted her point of view as well. And I wanted a a present day point of view. So I went in and kind of plucked her, you know, out of, out of the cast and went, okay, who did this woman turn out to woman turn out to be in her fifties? This woman who lived through this basically war in her twenties and lost Mm -hmm. everyone. Who is she? She's really got PTSD. She's really living in the past mm-hmm. in many ways. She's very conflicted. She's very guilt-ridden and uh, has failed in many ways as a mother and just, you know, a bit of a mess. But she's also someone who will have sex with some guy she found on the airplane and she's, you know, going to go after what she's looking for. I had a lot of fun with that. Just this like, I don't have time for your nonsense. Um, I think the same way that for me thinking about her, um, I think about where a lot of people get, if they're lucky enough to live into their 80s or 90s, this sort of like, I, I've i seen so much, you can't get mm-hmm. to me, I just, you know, um, and she's only 50 or so, right? Um, but she has lived through so much, she has lost so many people that I felt like I could put her in in almost that same place in terms of like, oh, you, you know, n- none of this is going to touch me. I'm, I'm, I'm good. Right. Um, so Bodie, Bodie's younger than that. Um, mm-hmm. she's, she's in her, she's really, I think 40 when we first meet her. Right. And right. then of course we see her, we see her younger self, but we're not there with her younger self. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's, you know, she's the mother of young kids but I very specifically did not want to put those kids on the page they are really not in the story yep despite absolutely everyone in the book constantly asking her who's watching her kids Mm -hmm. any woman who has traveled for work knows is like just you gotta get it three times a night and 
people might not be meaning to make you feel guilty, but that is the subtext, right? How how are you here instead of at home? She's someone who's uh, in the process of reinventing herself very much in this moment. Her marriage yeah. is ending. Um, what had been her career starts to end <laughs> um, in, in these two weeks when she's back at, at mm-hmm. the school. And she's um, really, you know, starts to realize that the space she had always been making for other people, the way you put that, you know, the stepping mm-hmm. aside, you know, this investigation was going on in 1995 and she figured I can't possibly have information because I'm not friends with those people. I'm not right. the right crowd. Um, and instead actually gave the police very, um, the only information she thought she could, which turned out to be, you know, possibly wildly misleading to them. But instead going, wait a second, what if I'm not an outsider? What if, no, not only not an outsider to this story, but what if I'm not an outsider to life in general? Mm-hmm. What if I'm not an outsider mm-hmm. to my own life? What if I actually just take center stage here? You know, it was important to me that in in high school, she was a theater kid, but she was always backstage. She was tech. She was wearing black. She was mm-hmm. would, would not have come on stage for the curtain call. Um, that was not who I was in high school, (laughs) but, but like, that's the, you know, that's the person I needed to make and then change, right? you know, and you start her in a certain place so that these events can transform her. She really is a great character. Before I ask you though, what you're working on next, can we talk about your Substack for a second? Submat? This is really fun. It's, I'm totally plugging your Substack because it's fun. (laughs) It's fun. Between the Zillow thing and the books in translation, Aww. how are you finding the time on top of everything else? Uh, you know, okay, so, so right, I, I started with Substack, it was only about a month ago, something mm-hmm, like that. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's a newsletter and people can mm-hmm. subscribe and there's a, there's a paid version for more stuff, but, and it's, um, it's called SubMac, so S-U-B-M-A-K-K, because I couldn't, I basically went on Twitter and I was like, who wants to name my Substack? I, I can't think of anything and someone suggested it. So, you know, I, I, I was always spending a lot of time on social media, you know, not just scrolling, but telling right. stories. Um, mm-hmm. Like, here's an unsolved murder from the 20s that I found, or check out this weird house I found on Zillow, or mm-hmm. here's this wild, you know, historical rabbit hole that I went down. I think it's honest, it's a lot of it's like the part of me that misses teaching elementary school, where <laughs> I could be like, oh my God, you guys, did you know this thing about Magellan? Like, we need to talk about this. Um, because I'm sitting alone all day and it doesn't always, you know, if it doesn't fit into my book, um, who am I going to tell this really cool stuff to? I I also started to realize, you know, how unstable things like Twitter really are um, and felt like I wanted to, you know, reach people more directly and also, you know, say things in in more than seven words at a time. I've been having a blast. And you know, what's funny is I will get, the only time I get writer's block is with emails. I... Mm -hmm. Write fiction very fast once I get going. Uh-huh. Something like a Substack, I whip those out. I could whip out seven of them a day if I didn't think people would get sick of me. <laughs> so um, it feels very natural. It's a lot of fun. It's the way my brain works. It would have been a 25 tweet Twitter thread. Right, right, right. I'm putting it in this slightly more respectable place. Have you found the books that you were trying to figure out for Eritrea? And there were some. You're working on the 84 books. Okay, yeah. Translation. So, so I that was the question. I was kind of like, all right, where are we going next? <laughs> yes. Okay. So I um right, but I, I'm doing this project in honor of my late father. He died mm-hmm. in 
January of 2020, and we'd never had a memorial service. And um, he was a, a literary translator, among other things. So I'm reading my way around the world. I'm reading 84 books because he lived to be 84 years old. Mm-hmm. And someone had already done around the world in 80 books. So I was like, no, we'll do 84 is more meaningful. Right. I started in Hungary because he was Hungarian. I'm going to end there too. And I just did number six, which was Greece. And now I'm reading a Turkish novel called Madonna in a Fur Coat. And uh, I haven't actually started it yet. I need to. Um, so yeah, and I'm going to work my way kind of down. Mm-hmm. I have books picked out for like Palestine, Yemen, Egypt, mm-hmm. and then I'm going to work my way down the east coast of Africa next. So I was crowdsourcing a little bit. Crowdsourcing was not terribly fruitful because and I'm not shocked, um, but not a lot of people, yeah. um, at least on my Twitter feed, um, have a great knowledge of um, of African literature. Right. So um, it's something, you know, I have some knowledge, but, you know, I feel like when I look at it and it's like, well, God, most of what I've read is Nigerian or South African with a few other things mixed in, you know, what's the greatest thing ever written in Kenya? What's the greatest thing from Eritrea? Like, obviously these places have deep, deep literatures. Mm -hmm. So I think I'm going to have to do more Googling unless, um, God, if anyone, you know, listening to this podcast wants to tweet at me suggestions for... It needs to be in translation, so not written in English. Right. But any genre, any year, um, just something important. Yeah, I got really stuck on it, too, because I was sitting down and thinking, and sort of the list I came up with, I was just like, no, actually, none of this is in translation. They're writers I love, and they're Mm -hmm. great, but I'm like, Abdul Razak Gurna lives in the UK. Right. Born in Zanzibar. Love his novels. I mean, he's amazing, but I was just like, yep, doesn't fit the bill. And I'm okay. Okay with literature, you know, certainly. Oh, sure. We all have our experience of literature and translation. And and there's some regions I know really well, but I just, I'm staring at this note in your substack and I'm going, yikes, yeah. I do not have a good answer. So um, I would love to know what people think too, because I'm just very curious. And I think it also sort of <laughs> speaks to global publishing, but that's a whole separate conversation. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that is a whole separate conversation. But it does bring me to the, so what are you working on that isn't your Substack? Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm supposed to be writing other things, really. Um, no, I um, I am beginning a new novel. Um, I'm at this phase where I, I definitely think I know, I definitely know what the next novel is, um, partly because um, I feel like it's a novel where I feel a political urgency in writing this book. Um, and I have a couple of other ideas that are very compelling to me, but they're ones that could just as well wait. And so there's there's something that I'm writing. And I this is definitely actually not giving it away, but I've been doing a lot of research on the rise of the Nazi party. I got to go to Germany and do a little bit of research. Uh, anyone picturing what book they think I'm writing, it's it's not that book. <laughs> um, right, right, right. So it's, you know, it's, 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 uh, and it's not, nor is it a Holocaust book, actually. Mm-hmm. So um, I am really drawn in. I will say, though, the really intimidating thing is this is the first time that I've su- hopefully successfully written about the life of a real person. And oh. so it's a very different experience uh-huh. reading biographies and memoirs and mm-hmm. being 
you know, partly limited and partly liberated by the actual historical record. This question of, well, can I get it right? But then also, well, do I care if I get it right? Is that really the point? Mm-hmm. Or am I creating a fictional character who has the same name as this real person? Um, so it's it's giving me fits. And I'm still um, I'm still circling the airplane a little bit on it. It's a lot of notes and research and only a few pages of writing that's really more spaghetti at the wall that's definitely not going to end up in the actual novel. That's what I'm working on. And what my hope is that um, by the time I'm really on the road for mm-hmm. some questions for you, that um, I'll be ready to, you know, do some good solid airport floor writing. <laughs> I actually write really well on airplanes, um, mm-hmm. you know, like strapped in and people bring you food and the Wi-Fi doesn't really work anyway, even mm-hmm. if you pay for it. So you might as well. Um, that's some good, good. Inf- and, and, and there's like a, you know, very specific time limit, like mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. how much time you have. Yeah. It's a, it's I a good love story. working on airplanes. I love, yeah. love. I get so much done. I get so much reading done. I can. There are people in my life who know that if they see me at dinner, slide me something before I get on a plane and I, (laughs) it will get read immediately. I I once actually scared a person sitting next to me because I was, I gave myself the hiccups because (gasps) I've been holding my breath reading something. And um, I, the woman sitting next to me, because this is back in the day when, you know, you were basically sitting on top of each other. And Mm -hmm. uh, she just looked at me and was like, no, it's really that great. Sorry. (laughs) Sales pitch. So I, I, and I don't usually talk to people on planes either because it's work time. It's totally, it's work time. It's exactly what you said. It's just like you're, you're there. You don't have to think about anything other than what's right in front of you. Yeah. I'm so intrigued by this new book. I realize it's not in a space where you can talk about it yet, but I'm no, but if so you, I mean, intrigued. I can tell you after we stop recording. Oh, I would very much. Yes, I would very much like to know because here's the thing. I apparently, like Jennifer Egan, I will follow you anywhere. That's oh. really what it comes down to. I mean, listen, we've got the story collection. There were two novels, obviously, before The Great Believers, The Borrowers, and The Hundred Year House, which, you know, if The Great Believers was your first experience of Rebecca, go back. Read the stories. If you don't think short stories, you think go back and read the stories. I promise you. Um, lots of clever stuff happens. And, you know, I have some questions for you. I have more questions, but we don't <laughs> want to spoil it because this is going to air right as the new novel comes yes. out. So, Rebecca Mackay, thank you so much for joining us on Port Over. This has really been a treat. Thank you. This is a great conversation. I really appreciate it. Hello, readers. It's time for another TBR Top Off. We're going to recommend a couple of books to pick up when you stop in for your copy of I Have Some Questions for You. I'm Mark. I'm coming to you from my Barnes & Noble store in Cincinnati, and I'm joined by my buddy, Jamie. Hello, Jamie. Hello, Mark. I'm coming to you from my Barnes & Noble store in Leewood, Kansas. Wonderful. All right, we're going to jump right in. Jamie, if you want to go ahead and get started. Absolutely. I think arguably one of the draws of I have some questions for you is the setting. You and I've talked, we love the dark academia setting, uh, this elite New England boarding school full of secrets and lies sort of ambiance is fun. And one of my favorite novels that I read last year, um, it was a really a spectacular debut novel. 
um, with a sort of similar vibe to it was Vladimir by Julia May Jonas. Vladimir is a first-person narrative about a pair of married college professors at a small liberal arts college, and our narrator begins her story as her husband is being investigated for having had inappropriate relationships with his adult, often former, some current, students uh, over the years. And it is clear that she really didn't know all the specifics of these relationships. Other than that, she knew they were consensual ostensibly, which gave her an excuse to not really think about them, or at least not look them directly in the eye. A lot of the book is centered around our narrator's interactions with her students who are of a new guard. She kind of came up on the second wave of feminism, and she thinks of herself as this erudite but approachable English professor. She is a proud but not militaristic feminist. And she thinks of her sort of don't ask, don't tell marriage as very modern, right? Uh, She's a mother, she's a published novelist, but she's ultimately not a very successful published novelist. She knows that her writing is not enough uh, to be of real interest to publishers, and she suspects as all of this stuff comes to light that maybe her life hasn't been enough either. And there's a moment where she's just really hurt by a group of students who approach her, these students who she sees herself as their mentor. They approach her and they really object to her silence around her husband's actions, and they think that she should dump him publicly. And her adult daughter also thinks that she's compromised in her life, and she's not living the life that she wants, Um, but she's not really sure what life she wants, right? So at this crucial moment, enter Vladimir Vlidinsky. Uh, He's a recently published novelist, a junior professor um, with a beautiful wife, Um, who's getting all kinds of attention for his new experimental novel, and our narrator becomes smitten with Vladimir. She thinks about him obsessively. She orchestrates ways to spend time with him, and she is fascinated by his relationship with his complicated wife. And I should say there is a prologue to this story, which really sets the scene. We learn on page two um, that the narrator is gazing at a sweetly snoozing, I think she calls him Vladimir, who is shackled to a chair in her remote cabin in the woods. So that happens on page two. Uh, And then she backs up and spends the entire novel filling you in on that gap between her husband's allegations and Vladimir handcuffed to a chair. And you are really racing as you're reading to find out how they got there. And along the way, we get to know her intimately. And while she's a little flawed, she's definitely an anti-hero. She's smart. She's funny. And she has this deep inner life that her husband, her daughter, her students uh, do not give her credit for. And so I really loved her. And I'm just going to give a shout out. I know the paperback was just published, um, but I want to give some kudos to the hardcover version which had a fantastic and provocative cover of a very fit shirtless guy sort of shot from the neck down and posed in this seductive pose with a very 80s paperback romance kind of font, right? That just the script that spelled out Vladimir. And um, I love the juxtaposition really of that kind of silly retro cover with this really fantastic, very modern book. So <laughs> good choice. Oh, and you're right that that initial cover, I was like, okay, what is going on here? And very much belies the the depth of the book too, which was just a fun extra little piece to throw into the novel. So nice choice. Well, I chose one that was a little strange. I was kind of going in that dark academia vein, and I. I 
my thoughts kept returning to the novel Vita Nostra. Uh, this is a novel put out by Marina and Sergei Dachenko. And, ooh, it's a weird one. But it was a satisfying challenge. Uh, this book dances around with traditional structure. It really plays with narrative in such strange ways. And it just feels so deliciously unorthodox. I'll do my best to try to sum up a little bird skeleton of a plot. So here we go. We follow a young woman named Sasha. She has been recruited to join a mysterious institute uh, in order to expand her learning and her consciousness. Uh, From there, insanity ensues. Uh, The things that this character has to go through in order to, I think, achieve uh, a higher level of being. She thinks maybe that's what the purpose is. it's the ride is cuckoo bananas, uh, but in the best way possible. Think uh, Harry Potter done by Tolstoy. Think the secret history on peyote. It is a book that can alter your perceptions. It is a book that can skewer philosophies while still being able to highly entertain and confound in the best possible way. Uh, it's a bizarre story. It reminds me a little bit of something like The House of Leaves by Mark Danielewski. It is strange and seductive, and if you're not careful, it could invite a level of obsession. It is very, very Russian. It is very strange. It is speculative in the best possible way. Um, I've not read anything quite like it, and I think it fits very well into that dark academia genre uh, while still being able to stand on its own as this strange, wonderful masterwork. So check out Vida Nostra by Marina and Sergei Duchenko. I am excited because the second book has been translated and is uh, being published in America very, very soon, I think. So uh, another reason to pick it up because uh, you'll want to know what happens. Yeah, yeah. There are some there are some questions I have and I want them answered. Well, that is all we have for today. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pour It Over. Please make sure to give us a rating and subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can also follow us on our socials at Barnes & Noble. I'm Mark. You can follow my home store at BN Westchester. I'm Jamie. You can follow my home store at BN Leewood KS. All right, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Have a great day. Happy reading. Bye. Thank you for listening. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.